Hello friends and welcome to part two of the Genesis Meaning. Here we're going to continue exploring a way of interpreting some of the early parts of the biblical book of Genesis as speaking directly to some of the most primal human experiences and discoveries of meaning. So let's get stuck in. The book of Genesis opens with these words, in the beginning. There is mystery in this beginning because none of us can remember the beginning of this human experience. We infer the beginning of all things without having direct access to it. Perhaps there is a kind of mercy in this. From our perspective, the beginning must be imagined and reconstructed since we are always already in the midst of being. To exist is to be intermingled with the world of others and things. We live in a story that has been going on since long before we got here and which is likely to continue to a conclusion only after we have left, whether in a whimper or a bang. We live in the drama within that drama rather than as an audience looking on from a distance from the outside. So we latch onto meaning with our whole lives as enfleshed selves. One way to read Genesis is to get caught up in the objects being described, as if our already being in the midst of things is of no consequence, as if we have access to our own origins, as if existence is totally transparent to us. But what I want to offer in this series is a reading that constantly turns its gaze back on the one perceiving what is happening. Someone, real and embodied, is always looking on from within the picture. This is to say that whatever we perceive is not just about what we perceive, that supposed object out there in the world. It always reflects back on us. What can we learn about what it means to be? And what can we learn about what it means to come into contact with reality? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When Genesis expresses the idea of this creation of heaven and earth, it preempts something that becomes clearer only later on with the creation of mankind, namely that heaven and earth are not merely out there as objects but are perceived from a particular point of view in a specific aspect within heaven and earth. Heaven and earth are not just out there somewhere but are the reality we live in. We train ourselves into an optical illusion, however, into believing that we can look without being the ones doing the looking. We may tell each other what we see, but forget that we are the ones doing the seeing. As Emmanuel Levinas says, the flesh is implicated already in the world. There is no invisible pane of glass separating me from the world, placing me and the world in different disconnected realms. I can't achieve any sense of my own being apart from my being entangled in the world. After all, my being in the world as this particular self with my particular experiences and perspectives is who I am. I am this person saying these words, trying and often failing to articulate what is almost certainly impossible to articulate fully. One of the great truths of Christianity is expressed in the book of John, and the word became flesh. Central to the Christian proclamation is this idea that the most transcendent reality is found not just beyond the human experience, in some inaccessible otherness, but in it, within the relational world that every one of us knows well. 
Regarding this, G.K. Chesterton suggests that we must all enact the great humility of this incarnation. We must descend into the flesh, recover a felt sense of our embodied being. Incarnation is not just reserved for Christ in a way, but for all people who are called to imitate Christ. It's foolish to despise our finitude. In fact, in despising our finitude, we end up with a distorted sense of self and a misunderstanding of our place in the world. No doubt, the Bible tells us about the transcendent and about self-transcendence, but it's significant that this view of transcendence is always from the ground, from within the chaosmos of the created order, from within fragile bodies that live and move and are not airbrushed into some ideal picture-perfect smooth form. Let's look again and then look a little bit further. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It's easy to read this as a scientist might, as a statement about some strictly literal view of the world, as an account that must, for some or other reason, rival modern cosmologies. However, bearing in mind that this is, first and foremost, poetry, it is perhaps better to begin by reading this as if from the ground, as if this is describing a human experience rather than some objective reality divorced from human life. Poetry often gets to our experiences better than science does, as we can tell from the fact that we are likely to feel something when reading poetry while finding ourselves more detached from the same thing when it is being expressed in scientific lingo. In the beginning, as I've said, we are caught up in the midst of things between the heavens and the earth. You might say, in the beginning, in the midst of things, we are caught between our ideals and our messy, fleshy being. We are tied to a kind of metaphysical rack that stretches us, pulls our bodies in opposite directions. We are these beings capable of glory, but also terribly fragile as we constantly wander through the world looking for armor to protect our nakedness and finitude. In this between, we are keenly aware of at least two things. The first, William Desmond describes as follows, There is a fundamental givenness of our finitude which we do not originate, but within which we find ourselves. In other words, we are aware of our being as something we did not generate. There is no such thing as a self-made person. The only people who really believe in the self-made are narcissists and psychotics, and their grasp on the real should not be trusted. The second thing we know is that the finiteness of our given being does not explain itself. It does not give itself meaning. Desmond uses the metaphor of heliocentrism to express this idea. Here's what he writes. Copernicans look to the sun as their point of reference. They look beyond the earth to remain true to the earth. They do not chant spellbinding incantations about remaining true to the earth and forget the sun. They wonder if the earth must look to the sun, since it can only be seen by the light of the sun. This recognition of finitude can be obscured, but it seems to me that our awareness of our finitude and the finitude of everything in the created order are primary and primordial. The heavens and the earth are there, or here, 
as things given to us from that which is beyond us. No one looks at anything in the world and assumes that it accounts for itself. Thus Genesis proposes, in the beginning, God. For the believer, God means, quite literally, if also mysteriously, God, the supernatural, super-existent, trans-rational, transcendent ground of being. For the unbeliever, God might represent that yet-to-be-explained origin or causal system from which this world is given. For both, God represents a mystery, and so atheism and apophatic faith embrace. For everyone, however, the view from the ground is always already concerned with discovering. It's about a porosity to being, an openness to otherness and to possibilities that pervade the world of meaning. In this digital age of ours, though, this view from the ground is almost impossible to access, especially as many of us become more and more immersed in it, sitting behind screens, looking at the world filtered, and always from a distance. And yet, we are persuaded, often, that we are getting the immediate truth. Because of this, otherness itself becomes almost unimaginable. Everything becomes smooth, slick, and swipeable. The more we drown in pixelated, algorithmic, simulated being, the harder it is for us to get a feel for our primordial experience of embodied being. In fact, the digital self does not perceive anything in the world from the ground at all, but rather views it always from some far-removed utopian perspective, spinning the world around the way that we can toy with it on Google Earth. The topography of the digital is flat, not hilly and varied. There is no digital weather, no digital love, no digital narrative, since all is data. This won't stop us from looking for a story, but the stories we manufacture out of any chaos of data end up being so full of disconnections and contradictions that they hardly count as stories at all. I have called this utopian, but I don't mean that this is a positive designation. Remember that utopia doesn't just refer to some idealized place, but refers primarily to some imaginary non-place, a non-place mediated always from within the self-same and the familiar. Transcendence and otherness can't exist there. On any given day, through social media portals and hyperlinks or a brief internet search, I can find out what's going on where you live, wherever that is. I can ask questions and have them answered. But it is precisely because of this that surprise is difficult, if not impossible to encounter. Smoothness is the sign of the times, the deletion of the negative, the ironing out of anything other and against. Smoothness is our dominant aesthetic. It links phone screens, slick car designs, shaved bodies, and bland architecture. It's a symbol of a drift towards self, towards the ease of what we already accept and know. Communication often must be smooth in our time. Hit the like, use the emoji, be polite, share, meme. If anyone doesn't conform to the appropriate level of smoothness or blandification, just cancel them. Don't worry about anything that's hard to interpret, just binge-watch smooth entertainment. Don't shake, injure, or unsettle. Remember that in our time, even ugliness must be smooth. Blood spatters must be, as in Quentin Tarantino films, slick. So much is rendered merely accessible. Emotion smooths things out too, unlike the hard work of thinking. 
Emotion is a hermeneutical lubricant. Everything is rendered near, immediate, not slowed down by reflective distance. So we keep it agreeable. The otherness of heaven is not in the smooth, nor is the roughness of earth. Well, that seems to be the way of things. People don't worry about the profound, the difficult to digest, anything that requires an acquired taste. Rapid consumption is so normal. Scroll, like, keep it easy to assemble to ensure that the IKEA effect kicks in. But in this, the aesthetic becomes the anesthetic. Communication that involves difference and even disagreement is replaced with contagion, pure, thoughtless immediacy. Nothing must be concealed. We can't microdose the smooth after all. We must swallow it wholesale without chewing. The interplay of concealment, heaven, and presence, earth, or mystery, that's heaven, and revelation, earth, that gives us the graces of experience and desire, it's sure to be converted into uninterrupted smoothness. Everything revealed like a data set, everything revealed so that we're left with nothing to see. Smoothing things out makes total transparency normal. It's easy to go into the confession booth and tell the whole world your sins now that the confession booth is a phone and a connection to social media. But when we know everyone's sins, we see that humanity is rough, not smooth. In smooth world, though, cries for blood drown a deeper need for forgiveness. Forgiveness, after all, is not smooth because in it heaven and earth collide. And so it will be resisted by anyone bowing before the idol of digital smoothness. Forgiveness involves knowledge, and knowledge is gained by resistance. We have to know what we forgive, but the smooth wants us to feel and not to know. Knowing is too hard. The smooth is easy to like, but it's not a likeness. It is only a semblance. Reality becomes stylized and frictionless. As you've noticed, smoothness favors youth and those photo filters that iron out all your laugh lines. The ideal selfie in smooth world is a face in the throes of erasure. The smooth has no inwardness too, no depths. It offers a world and the people in it converted into surfaces. This is a kind of sophistic aesthetics. When beauty atrophies, it becomes smooth. When experience atrophies, the remainder opposes the phenomenological. Everything becomes so very relatable. But how odd is it that all that smooth relatability is so very alienating? Of course, the smooth is not everything, but the allurement of the smooth is like the sugary house of the witch in the story of Hansel and Gretel. It's so sweet and tasty that we may forget, with so much of it there to consume, that it's not the nourishment we need. Far from granting me access to your world of meaning, this algorithmic smoothening and flattening is likely to distort my perception of it. It is, like Freudian psychoanalysis, anti-phenomenological because it functions in a way that fundamentally nullifies the question of the experience of being. In fact, it is easy enough to have our sense of our own place distorted by what is reported in the cybersphere. One of the more telling results of the age of electricity, this bastard love child of the age of machinery and a Cartesian worldview, is that we can no longer see the stars in all their glory. 
we can no longer see the heavens above the earth. I think of those occasions where I have been able to get out of the city and stand within the darkness of the earth beneath a moonless night. The earth then is truly without form and void. And there, looking up at the night sky, at the heavens, the perception of seeing the stars can sometimes be overwhelming. I think of the words spoken to Abraham and Isaac in the book of Genesis, how their descendants will be as numerous as the stars, and how shocking this revelation must have been to them that their fatherhood was so brimming with potential that it totally dwarfed their own lives. Also in Genesis, Isaac's wife Rebekah is told at one point that she is pregnant not just with two children, Jacob and Esau, but that two nations are in her womb. This, I think, is the proper way to understand potential. It always stems from the actual, of course, but its precise nature and impact are hardly ever conceivable to us. The future works according to the law of unintended consequences. To tap into the poetry of this, it helps to consider the awareness of these people unclouded by digital technological prostheses. They are present in the world. They are merely conduits, somehow gifted with being part of something bigger than themselves. They are both fundamental to birthing the future and insignificant. They generate life like heaven and then die like earth. This is the tension that lives in each of us and which each of us must live out. We are always between the formless earth and the starry heavens. Again, the heavens and the earth are not merely mental abstractions, but real expressions of our experiences. You can get a sense of the meaning of this by finding a mountain to climb outside the city. Find a place to stand and feel yourself held between heaven and earth. The tensions beyond and within us are felt there so easily that we are both elevated and dwarfed, as if we are both raised above it all and buried under the weight of it. This is at least part of what it means to live in the between. We lose track of the meaning of being when, instead of living in the tensions of being, we too quickly run to resolve them. We often want to get off the rack of being that makes us feel as if we're being torn apart and just rest in a simple absence of tension. This, again, is the temptation of the utterly smooth. This desire is always unrealistic and it produces a profound lack of clarity and wisdom. It's better to stay on the rack of being, I think, better to be tied to it and ripped apart. The psalmist writes, When I look at God's heavens and the work of his fingers, the moon and the stars which he has set in place, what is man that God is mindful of him and the son of man that he cares for him? We sometimes overlook this, but it turns out that the place we view the world from and what we're looking at can affect our posture towards reality. In a recent study published in the journal Emotion, researchers Daniel Stancato and Dracha Keltner discovered that awe, the perception of one's own smallness, led to, quote, reduced dogmatism and increased perceptions of social cohesion, end quote. I think of that song from the American tale where two of its animated characters gaze up at the sky they both share and so they become aware that their separation in distance is to a great extent overcome by their proximity to the same heaven. Ian Marcus Corbin writes the following reflecting on that study in the Emotion Journal. 
After being shown images of the night sky, participants found themselves less certain of their own indomitable rightness and less interested in establishing separation between themselves and their political opponents. It makes tremendous sense. In the face of cosmic or oceanic vastness or of the common mortality, it highlights our knowledge, power and the seemingly massive differences and enmities that exist between political opponents shrink to realistic size. Without that shrinking, an almost unlimited metastasis is possible, building every disagreement into a break, every break into an urgent, titanic clash between good and evil, with decreasing attention paid to the concrete realities and the actors at play. The trouble with ignoring some kind of phenomenology, ignoring our own enfleshed perspective on this, is pride. This, as I've already hinted, is one of the problems created by tarrying too much with the anti-phenomenological digisphere. The earth is always, in one way or another, formless and void. In an age of total transparency, this is easy to forget. When all of life is laid bare, albeit translated by zeros and ones, we end up with what Byung-Chul Han calls the pornographication and narcissification of life. Everything is laid bare, but the beauty and mystery that makes life genuinely meaningful are taken from us. Everything is laid bare, but we become the masters of meaning, taking what information feels only most useful to us. Life, in a way, becomes a meat market. But this is not what life really is, since life includes the wild and waste, the formless and void. It includes the earth. This is easy to forget, though, since totally transparent digital life is often sufficiently convincing as a counterfeit double that we may not notice it. All understanding, genuine understanding, is stand-undering. It's about standing beneath something like the starry heavens and standing within the formless void of the dark earth. We need both shadows and light to mutually inform each other and to mutually shape our perceptions of the world of meaning. Foolishness and hubris do something else. They center on overstanding or stand-overing. They look down on what is grasped, as if they have reached a perspective akin to something like the perspective of Hegel's absolute, all things subsumed under one definitive determination without remainder. Again, in the digital age, this stand-overing becomes totally plausible. And, as I already discussed in the previous episode, plausibility and truth are not, sadly, always the same thing. Even the idea that the world can be translated into easily mappable information makes it easier to believe that we have mastered the world of meaning. Truth is, the more transparent and, symbolically speaking, pornographic the world becomes, the more our narrativizations will begin to seem half-baked. A moment's reflection makes us aware that we have mastered nothing. We may, if we are lucky, catch ourselves in the lie. As Nietzsche says, wisdom understands the difference between accumulating knowledge and actual understanding. Wisdom includes the negative. It includes saying no to what I do not want to know. A desire to recognize the limits of my understanding when I come up against those limits. Wisdom knows the void of earth and the clarity of heaven. Foolishness presumes that 
all will be revealed. Foolish hubris, to be clear, is not the actual human perspective. It never is, because our perspective is finite. Rather, it is a counterfeit of the human perspective. It is merely imaginable, and then only for a moment. We cannot properly package the real in our box of plausible fictions, although this doesn't mean we won't try. This is reflected powerfully in the story of the fall of man, narrated in Genesis 3, but that is something that I will return to in a later episode. The symbol in Genesis reminds me, I am between the sky and the land, and both are more startling and astonishing than my ability to comprehend them. To adopt phenomenology does not mean that we must abandon all other philosophical wisdom. Metaphysics must still have its place, especially if it is to remind us that we are not in charge of meaning but merely its grateful recipients. Metaphysics, like all experience, is a servant too and should be humble in its articulations. Even metaphysics can be a reminder to follow Chesterton's advice. Descend into the flesh, allow the experience of meaning to emerge in the wake of our metaphysical musings, without allowing those metaphysical musings to overwhelm the real.